Korea are not a whole lot better. And I think Kishida will probably spend a lot of his time basically cozying up to Joe Biden. I think a lot of what Kishida will be doing is maintaining or basically protecting the U.S. relationship. But I think Kishida wants to try to cajole Biden back into the TPP, right? And I think one of Japan's biggest priorities right now is to get uh, the U.S. back into this trade grouping that Trump pulled out of. And so I think Kishida will probably focus a lot more on the U.S. than he will uh, on North Asia, for better or worse. Okay, William, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. That's William Pesic. Thank you, Peter. Tokyo-based journalist and author. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 is off about a quarter of a percent. In Australia, stocks are slipping there about 0.6%. The Cosby is up about 1% and also looks like the Hang Seng is going to break its five-day losing streak, rising about one and a third percent at the open. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil around $84.77 a barrel. Gold hovering around $1,792 an ounce. Thank you for listening this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Back chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Andrew Work. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy, sunny periods with a maximum temperature of around 27 degrees. And then the outlook is for sunny periods in the next couple of days. Rather warm, one or two rain patches. And then the temperatures falling appreciably later on Sunday. It's 24 degrees right now, 79% relative humidity. It's 8.31 and a half. With the news headlines, here's Andrew Chawoski. Legislator Frankie Yick has urged the government to regulate fuel prices or subsidize the transport sector to help it deal with the rising costs. Data from the Consumer Council show diesel prices rose from around $11 per litre last year to $14, an increase of around 30%. Mr. Yick told Janice Wong that some self-employed drivers had quit while others, such as school bus firms, who are locked into contracts, or minibus and taxi drivers, have to bear the extra burden themselves. He said the public would end up suffering unless the government stepped in. Well, I'm sure some of the public transport operators, they will just quit from the, the, the services that they are providing. So the uh, general public will be affected in terms of the service, or, uh, or, or else they will, they will ask the government to adjust the, uh, the fare level so that they can take the money back. So then at the end of the day, it's the citizen who, are, who, are, who is going to pay more. The Department of Health is warning the public not to take an oral product called Hemohem, saying it causes liver damage. The product can be used to re- treat skin conditions, but it contains the substance methoxylin a substance listed under the pharmacy and poison regulations. Robert Kemp reports. The department said the hospital authority had notified it on Friday of suspected poisoning cases involving acute liver injury in four women aged between 42 and 72. All had reported tea-coloured urine, jaundice and vomiting between April and September. They were admitted to hospital and have since been discharged. The women said they had taken Hemohim, thinking it would improve their health with consumption ranging between about two weeks and six months. The department collected two samples from the patients and the government laboratory yesterday confirmed the presence of methoxylin. President Joe Biden has told the United Nations Climate Summit in Scotland that the fight against global warming is a moral imperative, but also offered incredible opportunities for world economies. Mr. Biden said creating technologies to reduce emissions would create millions of jobs in the United States and around the world. Together with the European Union, we're launching a global methane pledge 
to collectively reduce methane emissions, one of the most potent greenhouse gases, by at least 30 percent by the end of the decade. More than 70 countries have already signed up to support rapid reduction of methane pollution, and I encourage every nation to sign on. It's, it's the simple, most effective strategy we have to slow global warming in the near term. President Xi Jinping has said developed countries need to do more to tackle climate change and provide extra help to developing nations. Mr. Xi said countries need to work together to solve the crisis. He addressed the conference in a written statement after deciding not to attend in person. One of the world's biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, India, has for the first time committed itself to a target for reaching carbon neutrality. But the date of 2070, announced by the Prime Minister Narendra Modi, is two decades later than a United Nations recommendation. And the American psychiatrist Aaron T. Beck has died at the age of 100. He's regarded as the father of cognitive therapy, which is now the world's most studied form of psychotherapy. His work became the center of a revolution in the treatment of depression, anxiety, and many other mental disorders in the 1960s. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Andrew Work. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about calls for closer regulation of real estate agents selling overseas properties. The Consumer Council has said it received 106 complaints against Hong Kong agents involved in such transactions in the first eight months of this year, almost double the total for the whole of last year. Complaints included uh, misleading advertisements, failure to provide essential information and withholding cash. The council has called on the government to require estate agents selling homes overseas to be licensed. Currently, agents who don't sell properties in Hong Kong are exempt from licensing. And after 9.15, we're discussing road safety after several fatal accidents uh, over the weekend. Um, let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And joining us uh, this morning for our main discussion, uh, we have on the line Gilly Wong, Chief Executive of the Consumer Council. Also, uh, Mansi Mann, co-owner and managing director at Century 21 Goodwin International. And uh, Gigi Wu, a co-founder of UK Property Box, which is uh, a company which provides uh, training in uh, uh, buying overseas properties. Um, uh, good morning to you. Uh, Gilly Wong, perhaps if we could start with you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Yes, um, good morning, Jim. Good morning. So um, your report uh, points out that uh, the volume of complaints is not particularly high. However, um, we're talking about uh, large sums of money in many cases. So, so this issue is, uh, is pretty serious, uh, obviously. Um, so tell us more about uh, uh, the, the, what you would say would be the need for licensing estate uh, agents selling properties overseas. Let me just give you a brief um, uh, gist about uh, the study. Um, because we can see that many Hong Kong people start buying uh, overseas, uh, I mean, um, uh, properties outside Hong Kong. And uh, it is not just for investment, it's for many purposes, say retirement or for kids um, or for holiday home. So with, uh, with this 
uh, backdrop bear in mind, then we review all our complaint statistics over the past few years, and also we conduct uh, quite a uh, uh, large-scale uh, advertising uh, survey, uh, and also uh, we also have a mystery visits as well to look at um, 36 different kind of projects, and um, based on our complaint statistics, um, it is very obvious that. Um, out of the all the complaints that received, although the number is not um, uh, very high, uh, we are talking about 261 cases, but out of which uh, 90% of the complaint cases involved estate agencies, 63% actually involved unlicensed agencies. And the amount of loss actually is very high. We are talking about $370,000 for uh, the average loss. And also the property value that we are talking about uh, per uh, property is t uh, about $1.8 So in case of anything uh, wrong happened on um, uh, POH, uh, purchase overseas properties, mm -hmm. uh, which is quite substantial. And um, the kind of complaints you know, that we received can broadly classified into several areas. First of all is um, questionable claim despite um, because they present a very attractive rental guarantee, but in reality that cannot be honored. Um, also misleading information, rep misrepresentation about uh, such as wrong address or, or, or even, you know, on material information. Um, sometimes um, there are also problems in uh, overinflated the purchase price of the property, so that led to... Um, uh, unable to get the right mortgage, and that led to um, the cancellation, withdrawal of the um, of the of the transaction. And finally, of course, you know the worst scenario is a project failure. So that's about um, the complaint statistics. And oh, there one more thing about the complaint. Uh, it is about uh, what we what we found is, although it could be online advertisements or print advertisements, many of those, almost all of those, will involve a local contact. That means a Hong Kong contact for follow-up, direct sales pitch, or to go to certain sales exhibition. Um, so most of the uh, transactions actually happen in Hong Kong. We are talking about over 90% of it. So that's about complaint statistics. From the print advertisement further reinforced what the um, consumers' um, complainants uh, told us is about um, all questionable claims. Um, confusing information and also the problem in license and also uh, disclosure about uh, their identity in the sense of whether they are licensed agent or not. Uh, one very important thing that I want to highlight is according to the current legislation, um, there's a, even though the licensed estate agencies in Hong Kong, if they sell overseas property, um, um, uh, properties outside Hong Kong, they have to follow the practice circular issued by the estate agent authority. But in reality, if any estate agents, they solely uh, market uh, POH, um, they don't require to be licensed, as long as they declare that they are not holding any license. For estate agents in Hong Kong, they can also hire unlicensed estate agents to help them to market the property. So from a consumer point of view, it is very confusing whether the person they're dealing with is a licensed or unlicensed agent or not. So that led to, back to the point about the advertisement survey, because according to our, our, our stock take, many of these kind of advertisements, they either miss the license information, um, the exemption disclaimer also um, missing, 
Sometimes the font size is just too small or too blurred that that's impossible for anyone anyone to read. And uh, some oh, for the online version, um, usually you have to scroll down so many pages before you can spot it. So we can see, even though there's a requirement about the disclosure of the disclaimer, but in reality, it, is, it doesn't help consumer that much. And finally, talking about our mystery visits to that 36 projects covering seven markets, uh, we found many of the unlicensed agents, they hardly disclose their identity through their name card or their pamphlet or leaflet. And also many of them hardly will remind the consumers about the risk that involved in buying um, um, uh, properties outside Hong Kong. So this is all the situation that is quite um, uh, not ideal. Uh, there's lots of rooms to improve, and that's why we recommend um, the um, estate agent authority and also the housing bureau to consider um, to regulate, uh, to strengthen the regulation by imposing all estate agents who engage in the sales of first-hand residential uh, properties outside Hong Kong to be licensed under the estate agent's ordinance by amending the exemption order. So in just that's about our findings. Um, as a result of that, the um, information disclosure as well as the um, advertisement should also have uh, tightened the control as well as you recommend um, a cooling off period for the reservation fee that's right now charged by um, the um, estate agents. Um, so that the consumers could have more time to think through again, to think twice, whether they really engage into the transaction or not. Right. So, so it, I mean, the suggestion is to set up a separate regulatory agency, but, I mean, how, how do we quantify the actual losses of people? Because when you say the value of a house is $1.8 million, well, if you still get your money back, even if you had a delay, you didn't actually lose anything, especially given interest rates now. And, I mean, if you're going to suggest spending, you know, $100 million to have an agency that, will examine people, license people, then you have to have an exam for people representing Malaysia properties because the rules are different from Canada, from Australia, from the UK, the US. You know, you've got to have a, an, age, an, an authority head who's going to get paid $6 million a year, which is about the going rate in Hong Kong. You know, and then, you know, you've got to have directors and subdirectors and more subdirectors. And, and I mean, is it worth spending, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars in Hong Kong when you have a few complaints a year um, from people that, you know, probably should undertake a little more research on their own. Well, uh, I think from a consumer protection standpoint, um, always we talk about consumer education is very important because uh, people have to be self-protected. They need to do how to do their own research and also um, um, make an informed choice about their decision. Um, purchasing um, a property outside Hong Kong is a very important decision because we are talking about a huge amount of money. And um, because they cannot um, um, check out the property easily themselves, they rely a lot on the estate agents um, to uh, provide the proper information for them to consider. So even right now, uh, if you buy a property locally, um, the um, property, um, the estate agents also still is required to provide the right information, accurate information in a transparent manner and also providing, you know, the risk warning as well. It is the same requirement. But what we are talking about, it is even more essential for the uh, consumers to rely on the estate agents to provide them the information. And that's why 
we and also in many cases when we have our advertisement survey and also throughout complaint cases, majority of the property um, outside Hong Kong market in Hong Kong in reality is also through an estate agent. So that's very important for this important interface um, to be well regulated. Uh, and provide the proper information to consumers. Um, according to the practice circular right now um, from the estate agent authority, in reality, they have to already, if you are a licensed agent in Hong Kong, you have to provide a due diligence report, legal opinion, warning statements, and also the sales and marketing uh, materials should have the prescribed information. We are following the same, but what we are trying to say is for all these um, um, four important documents, there are areas to improve provide more information for consumers um, to consider. So it is nothing um, completely different from what they're doing, but enhancement so that the um, estate agents can provide more professional services. They have the equal uh, competition market field to compete with each other, and hence the quality of their information provision will be very important for consumers before they really consider to uh, engage into the transaction. So we just need enhancement. We don't need a new authority. Um, you, you don't need a, a new authority at all. Okay. Uh, um, Mansi Man, good morning to you. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, actually, our other guest, uh, Gigi Wu, will be joining after nine o'clock. But uh, uh, Mansi Man, co-owner and managing director at uh, Century 21 Goodwin International. Those um, problems that Gilly Wong was outlining, um, do you, do you recognise uh, those uh, scenarios? Yeah, um, we agree with the Consumer Council. Like, um, uh, all the agents in Hong Kong would sign over this property to supposed to be regulated as a licensed agent. But what we concern the existing like uh, agents license holder as the agent authority may not be able to cover our sections because you know there's a, a lot of different countries selling different property in Hong Kong. Then. Each country of property, they have their own law. Yeah. Like, for example, mm. the cooling off period that uh, Gilly Wong has mentioned before, they suggested to have seven days cooling off period to the consumer. But in Australia property, the local government only offering three days cooling off period. And in UK property, you doesn't have the cooling off period. So it's hard for us to find the such regulation if we're selling the property in Hong Kong. But we... We agree that the advertisement in Hong Kong seems a bit over misleading. So we suggest at the first day, maybe as the Asian authority can set up a guidance of the advertisement to the agents like us, so we can follow the rules for marketing the property in Hong Kong. So would it help if the agents were licensed? We think so, but what we're concerned is uh, who can provide such training, who can hold or uh, issue the license to us, because different countries have different practice on selling property. So that was what we concerned. I mean, would, would you have to have a different licensing, different training and different licensing for every single country? So if you wanted, like, I mean, how many people are really selling Thai properties? Or Malaysian properties or Singaporean um, properties. I, I think it is hard for different countries have different licenses. Maybe a general license for overseas property, like the Asian Authority can set up a guidance of overseas property in general, how to advertise the property, how to be an overseas property agent, 
how to get those uh, regulated documents from lawyer to prove the property is existed, especially the uh, uncompleted property overseas. Do, do you think we're having more complaints this year because people can't travel to check out the properties themselves in the past? They would have maybe gone on a holiday and had a look at some of the properties they were interested in or the projects or the neighborhoods. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think it's more problematic this year because people aren't traveling? Nowadays, it's not a huge problem because uh, internet is amazing. People always go into the internet and then using a Google map. But this is a uh, concern for us by coming into our community to ask a lot of questions. So the Asian mentality is the key of how consumers to purchase their property. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, uh, Jim? What, yes, uh, this is Gilly. Yeah, uh, yes, I, I just want to clarify one fact that yeah. uh, what we are proposing right now is not to require for estate agents um, that focus on UK, we have a UK license or in Australia, a, a Australia license. Uh, a Malaysia, um, focusing on Malaysia, you have to uh, a Malaysia license. We are talking about um, is to require whoever market. Um, uh, properties outside Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, that should be uh, uh, also focused on the first-hand residential property as well to require the estate agents um, to be licensed. Um, so the requirements in actual fact is about the, um, the quality of the work and also the information disclosure that they are, uh-huh. are providing through what they're doing right now, the due diligence report, legal opinion, warning, and also the sales and marketing uh, materials. Um, so this is what already the licensed agent in Hong Kong they're doing already. But it is completely irrational to, um, to have uh, two different kind of treatment for um, for people selling um, their property um, uh, in overseas in Hong Kong with a different um, uh, board game. If you are solely um, marketing the overseas property, then you don't have to be licensed. But if you are a Hong Kong licensed agency, then you have to follow the practice circular. So this is, this is um, we believe it is so inconsistent and it is very difficult for consumers to understand um, this uh, difference in treatment, um, the different kind of regulation, and um, also the kind of um, professionalism and also the services that they provide could be very different as well. And that's why we want to standardize it. But uh, to address, you know, the large knowledge in the overseas market, obviously this is the choice of the estate agencies, whether they want to focus on certain markets. Um, you have to provide the training, uh, facilitate by the authority if, if really needed. But uh, right now for different estate agencies, if they have a certain focus in terms of markets, um, they will have their way of training their, um, their estate agents uh, about um, the local requirements, um, the details about um, um, the regulations, and also what needs to be done to provide the service as well. I have a question from somebody in the business. He wants to know if you think that people, if agents selling property abroad should be licensed in the countries for the properties that they are selling. So if you're selling property in Canada, do you think they should have to have a license from a, from a recognized body in Canada? Or if they're selling properties in the UK or Malaysia? They have to have a license from those countries. Um, you mean you mean selling property locally? If they're going to sell in Hong Kong, but the property itself is in Canada, the should they have a license Canada, from a body in, in Hong Kong? Yeah, but should they should they, Kong, should they have a then, license from Canada? Then it has to be a local licensed agency to market. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, do you think that if people are selling property in other countries, should they then have a license from that country? Um, if they're overseas 
I mean, if you are in Canada already, of course you have to follow the local regulation. Sure, but what we're asking again, third time, if they are in Hong Kong selling a property in Canada, do you think, like, do you believe that they should have a license from Canada? Or if they're selling property in Malaysia, they should? No, 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 no. You don't, you don't think so? No, no, because okay. right now we are talking about the information provision in Hong Kong. Yeah. You see what I mean? So you don't have to be double licensed. Um, as long as you are marketing in Hong Kong, there are many business models. You may have a partner in overseas. Mm-hmm. That partner will provide you the information. But if you are in Hong Kong to market that property, then you have to be licensed and also provide the right level of information to consumers for them to make their informed choice. Okay. Mansi um, Man, how about uh, yeah. Gilly Wong's point there? It's, uh, it's irrational to have two different sets of standards for estate agents uh, selling properties here and those uh, selling properties uh, overseas. that is uh, Hong Kong as the agent of royalty can set up a general rules, but they have to give us, give us a clear guidance of what we need to follow. Because uh, you guys mentioned it because uh, like Canada, like Malaysia, like Australia, we have different general practice on selling the property, you know. Where is popular at the moment? UK property is most popular in our company because due to the being the immigration policy and the depreciation of power, the stability of mortgage plans also is the reason why the Hong Kong chaser intended to buy UK property. Mm-hmm. Does does the popularity of different places roughly correspond with the amount of complaints that come mm-hmm. from different jurisdiction? Yeah, not from our company, but we heard that some people purchase a license north city in such as Manchester, Liverpool, they will make some problem of the property quality and uh, the later completion date. We heard that in the industry. Uh, Gilly Wong, have you found that any particular locations uh, are problematic? Well, it is. Um, there are a few um, locations. It's very popular to Hong Kong people. But then, obviously, you know, there are more. There are more complaints from them, um, covering UK, Australia, uh, Thailand, and also uh, mainland. Um, these are the uh, probably um, the, um, the 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 markets that we have uh, received the highest number of complaints by far. Do some places get a higher concentration of complaints? Uh, sorry, say it again. Do, do some places get a higher concentration of complaints? Like I, I understand if you have more people are buying houses in the UK, you're probably going to get more complaints from there. But if some countries have really bad standards or really terrible practices in terms of sales, then they would have more complaints than, you know, than the than the level of interest going there. Are there some countries like that that? you get a lot of complaints based on what mm, gets we, delivered? We, we cannot classify like that because um, um, we classify according to what the complainants told us. Um, so when we look at the figures, uh, take stock at the statistics, um, the market that I've just mentioned, they receive the most complaints. Um, mm. Whether they have, they have, because the kind of, um, the kind of problems that um, we observe are very similar. Mm. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, this is one guy um, selling a, a buyer property in, uh, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, the facility nearby, they said it is a car motel, but turned out to be a psychiatric recovery home. Um, this is obviously a material information is incorrect. Um, and also, um, there are cases that um, they have the rental guarantee also in Australia, 4%. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And in UK as well, very attractive uh, rental guarantee. Um, but turn out all in a sudden when they um, take over the property, um, when, it, when it's delivered, they said uh, that rental guarantee um, can be unilaterally cancelled. Um, that creates a lot of um, um, uh, damages to the complainant because uh, they rely on that rental guarantee. And, and there are cases that uh, they overinflated the price, uh, missing out the mortgage because they cannot have the full mortgage. And at the end of the day, they have to give up, give up the, um, the whole transaction. And that incurred a substantial loss. That happened in different markets. In mainland China, um, usually what we observe is about um, the material fact. For example, uh, when you saw the um, layout, there are windows uh, in the uh, toilet, but turn out to be there's no window in the toilet. That kind of um, problem, and also maybe project um, um, late in delivery as well. So different markets have different problems, but the one I've just um, talked about, they are very common across all markets. Can I, can I say a rough story? Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, because regarding the beginning, I agree with that. Like the such the advertisement, they would say that the rental guarantee or the overpricing are locally, so the bank may not able to get a mortgage. But the point is, those marketing materials is provided by the developer, mm-hmm. like the rental guarantee. Mm-hmm. This is out of agent's control. So the rules and regulations have to consider our our difficulties, like such materials is provided from the developer. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Uh, we're going to have to take a, a break uh, in a moment because we've got the news summary coming up uh, at nine o'clock, I think. Uh, uh, now we have to say uh, cheerio to uh, Gilly Wong, Chief Executive of the Consumer Council. Thanks very much for, for joining us uh, on the programme. Um, Mansi Mann, we hope, uh, can stay with us uh, for a bit longer after the news. Um, uh, do get in touch. Uh, leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 Quick look at the weather. Mainly cloudy, sunny periods, though, during the day. Top temperature around 27 degrees. Um, currently, it is at 25 degrees. Humidity is at 76%. <laughs> solve the crisis. He addressed the conference in a written statement after deciding not to attend in person. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back to Back Chat uh, with Andrew Work and me, Jim Gould. And uh, this morning we're talking about calls uh, for licensing of uh, real estate agents selling overseas properties. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, on the line Mansi Mann, who's a co-owner and managing director at Century 21, Goodwin International. We're also joined now by uh, Gigi Wu, who's a co-founder of UK Property Box. Um, just before we resume our conversation uh, with our guests uh, a couple of emails here um patrick says uh, dear backchat uh, complaints against overseas property agents included uh, misleading advertisements failure to provide essential information about properties and withholding cash are we talking about overseas agents or licensed 
Hong Kong property agents, you forgot to add uh, complaints like uh, lying and blackmailing. Uh, I always thought it was uh, used car salesmen that were the lowest of the low. They looked like knights in shining armour compared to a Hong Kong property agent. Uh, that might be a little bit uh, harsh there, <laughs> Andrew. What, what uh, it's actually, it's, yeah. We're actually talking about Hong Kong agents selling properties overseas rather than, rather than overseas property agents. Uh, uh, Rick says, uh, if I'm buying a property overseas, I don't need or want the extra expenses you just l outlined, Andrew. Buyer beware. Another yeah. step towards the nanny state that we're heading towards. Wow. Okay. Agreed. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I'm with you. Oh, okay, uh, Gigi Wu, good morning to you. Hello, Jim and Andrew. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, uh, your company, you, you provide the training in uh, buying and investing in overseas properties. Um, what, what are the kind of um, areas that you, you tell your people, you know, this is what you have to watch out for and this is where the problems and the dangers may be? Yeah, in particular, our company offers education uh, specifically for buying UK properties. And there are a few things that we need to tell our students all the time. First of all, do your research. I was, um, when I was approached by you guys um, to do this uh, interview, I was just thinking buying property without doing research is just like buying stocks without knowing the company uh, financials. So the most important thing is really doing your research about the area and the property itself. And I was, you know, um, listening to the comments just now about misrepresentation and misleading information. And if uh, the property investor is really doing his or her homework in research, um, these uh, risks should be minimized. And so these are the two fundamentals. First of all, doing research. And definitely, secondly, um, is to really ask people or ask friends and family who have experiences, um, for example, buying in the countries that they are buying properties to see what their thoughts are. And if you have friends living in the area, that's even better. So do more research online. Uh, or in person. It's very true, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking of London. I, I used to live in London uh, a number of years ago, and that's a city where you will have a, a very nice uh, sort of a de desirable area, if you like, and then, you know, not far away, just a few streets away, it can be really rough. And, uh, and what's more, these areas tend to change over the years and what have you, so you really need to know uh, the area that you're focusing on, don't you? Yes, you do. And unfortunately, I think many people, um, you know, first of all, some people do have the language barrier uh, when they're doing local research, for example, in the UK, in Australia, in Japan or in Canada, for example, in the US, right? They might have the language barrier. And I think um, what they really need to do is to, um, you know, find somebody whom they trust. Um, for example, in the UK, there is no requirement that the buyer actually has an agent representing them. And, you know, usually you would approach the estate agent, which is the seller's agent. And, of course, they are really, you know, selling the property on behalf of sellers. Yeah. They are not really acting for buyer's interest. So I think, you know, one of the, uh, you know, I guess methods which we could minimize the risk of and, you know, not knowing the area is perhaps hiring somebody who can act on their behalf in selecting the properties rather than sort of just go into some exhibition and, you know, try to um, buy a property uh, which they have no knowledge of the area 
um, or the property itself. Is it, is it hard enough? Because we asked this in the first part of the show. A, because people can't travel to check out the neighborhood, to check out the property, but B, also because, especially with the UK, so many people are going to the UK now that don't really have any family or contacts here. So it's, it's almost like a, another wave of Hong Kongers going in really fresh. Um, so they don't have those kind of resources. They don't have anybody that can go and have a look around and tell them about the neighborhood, or you know, as Jim says, one 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 block from the next. Okay. Yes, uh, there there are actually services by certain companies that they do act for buyers and help them to um, view the areas and you know take photos, take videos, and actually some of the agents um, they are called sourcing agents in the UK who act solely on the interests uh, of the buyers rather than, you know, acting for the sellers. So they can, um, you know, with no- local knowledge, help the buyers to, say, differentiate, you know, as Jim said, you know, one street might be very, very rough, but, you know, if you cross that street, the other area might be good. And there are services like that um, which could help first-time buyers in the UK if they do not have any um, contacts in the UK uh, personally who could help them with a house purchase. Mancy, man, do you, do you welcome the participation of these kind of people or are they just throwing sand in the years of your sale? <laughs> no, I welcome that. Are they just causing trouble for you? Because, no, we, we, can, we can be a good partner. <laughs> Yes. Excellent. How, how often do you find uh, people are using sourcing agents like that or people that are, are, are the advocates of the buyer? How often do you run into them when you're trying to execute on a sale in the UK? Do, how often does somebody pop up and say, hey, by the way, I've got somebody working on, for me and I want them yeah. to go see the property? How often does that happen? Yeah, uh, always. In oh, fact, oh. That our company has a local team who doing the sourcing agent for us. Mm-hmm. So we have a back office in UK, like London and Manchester. And the Hong Kong team will do the selling, and then they will do the FaceTime call with the UK team, so our buyer can have a real-time visit to UK. Mm. Okay, it helps a lot. Yeah. So, so Gigi Wu, you, you said you, your focus is on UK. Is that because of the, uh, you know, the current uh, the uh, uh, BNO opportunities, and um, wh- why is it? Why 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 are you UK focused? Yeah, uh, historically, um, you know, it's really relating to some sort of, you know, I guess personal preference. I was educated in the U.S., uh, uh, sorry, U.K., um, so I did law in the U.K. I used to be a solicitor in Hong Kong, and after I came back to Hong Kong, I looked at a lot of different overseas properties. I've been to many of these exhibitions in Hong Kong where um, developers or, you know, agents sell like U.S., uh, Australia, uh, you know, all UK properties, all types of properties, Japanese properties, right? So um, I've actually looked through all of them, um, but I wasn't really comfortable investing in any of these overseas properties because I wasn't quite sure that's exactly what you guys were talking about, right? Um, mm-hmm. Wasn't quite sure about the area. Um you know, haven't been to, for example, haven't been to, you know, this particular area in uh, Australia. I mean, how would I be comfortable investing in it, right? It's a lot of money uh, buying a property. So uh, I came across an opportunity uh, to work with a property mentor in the UK. So I actually hired um, my mentor uh, to teach me um, the research skills and how to look uh, for, like, you know, different research tools 
in assessing the property prices and rental demand in areas in the UK. So that was why I focused on uh, property in the UK. It's just, you know, because I, you know, personally was educated in the UK and I had this opportunity to come across uh, meeting my mentor. So I'm very comfortable investing in the UK as a result of me having property education. So that was the reason why. And I still haven't found anyone, um, for example, in Australia who can mentor me. You know, I'm, uh, you know, experienced in the UK, but I can't say, you know, I'm experienced in Australia, for example. So I think the importance is really, um, you know, getting yourself familiar with the area and how you're able to do proper research uh, to make your investment. How about Vancouver or Canada? Yeah, I'm actually in Vancouver right now. So okay. I'm uh, doing um, on-the-ground uh, research, uh, speaking with uh, many realtors, um, doing desktop research myself. So mm-hmm. I'm starting um, my first project. So we'll see. All right. Mansi Man, do you have much uh, dealings with uh, UK property? Yeah, uh, we we mainly doing the UK property at the okay. moment. Uh, right, so right. We okay. also, yeah, uh, we we doing the uh, London property, Manchester property, first and second hand. Depends on the buyer interest. R- right. Okay. London, Manchester. Any other areas? Any other cities? I mean, is it is, yeah. it, is it mostly focused also on city? Cambridge. We also covering. Mm-hmm. And, w- and what are the priorities? I mean, apart from uh, apart from cost and values, I mean, are people are look- looking at looking for for good schools, uh, universities. Mm. The school catchment is the main concern for Hong Kong buyer. I think because they intended to purchase UK property as their second home, and for their kids for future education and the opportunities, so they could. School catchment area is the main concern for the Hong Kong buyer, and also the crime rate. You know, Hong Kong people always asking, "Oh, which area is most safe for living, or right. which area is the most dangerous place?" Right, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Hong Kong, of course, uh, is a, a very safe place to live. <laughs> yeah, and, correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. So, Mansi, I'm, I'm just wondering because we've only got you guys on for a little bit, and you know, to come back to the the original topic, are you looking yeah. forward to having, uh, you know, having to get your your agents that work for you, having to have them licensed to sell international properties? I have to go through another round of exams. Is this something that you just live with as a real estate agent, or is this going to be very ma fun if you have to start <laughs> doing exams uh, for to be able to sell international we, we, properties? We hope we can have a proper exam, which is for our overseas property agency because we, we agree with consumer council readers they regulated property agency can protect Hong Kong by interest. But what we concern is the existing license does not cover overseas property. Do you think this is a good opportunity for SA Agent Authority and Housing Bureau to review the agent's guideline and regulations? As the existing agent training or the examination does not even cover the commercial property in Hong Kong, you know. Yeah, would, it, would that get rid of a lot of comp- would would it get rid of a lot of competition for you if you because you you have the facilities to support people in studying and taking the exams, but you you could probably yeah. get you could get rid of a lot of competition. Would that is that something you would look forward to? Of course, yeah, because so many people is uh, selling overseas property in Hong Kong. Some of them are just uh, overseas study company, some of them are just local, like local retail shop people are uh, selling overseas property too. So we ho- 
hope there is a license or exam that stand out ourselves as a professionalism. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you very much uh, for joining us. So we're, we're going to have to bring this uh, this part of the program to a close. Uh, uh, very interesting. Uh, great to talk to you. That was uh, uh, Mansi Mann. You heard their co-owner and managing director at Century Twenty One Goodwin International, and also uh, on the line from Vancouver, uh, Gigi Wu, uh, co-founder of uh, UK Property Box. Um, thank you both very much, and and uh, thanks also to Gilly Wong, chief executive of the Consumer Council, who we heard from uh, before nine o'clock. And uh, before we turn our attention to uh, our second topic uh, this morning, which is uh, road safety, um, a few emails that uh, I didn't get round to reading out yesterday uh, on the subject of uh, uh, limiting climate change and trying to achieve uh, carbon neutrality. Of course, uh, we have the United Nations uh, Summit uh, going on this week uh, in Glasgow. Um, so uh, so here are some of those uh, emails that we received uh, yesterday. Um, so, uh, dear Backchat, how disappointing that you went to the news yesterday uh, just when things were getting interesting. You let the Deputy Environment Minister off the hook when Dr Paul accused the government of greenwashing. Myself and other listeners would have been very interested to see what kind of government speak she would have uh, come up with... Uh, Dr. Paul better watch himself. That wasn't very patriotic. Uh, that's a message from uh, uh, Richard. Uh, yeah, actually, mm -hmm. well, I mean, it's, a, it's sorry, but it's a fixture. Nine o'clock, nine o'clock, time signal, news sure. summary. It's not... Uh, Got to keep flexible. the people informed, uh, right? Yeah, with the news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and... Um, yeah, and unfortunately, uh, Millie Young, the Deputy Environment Minister, had to leave after nine o'clock, so we weren't able to continue with that. But uh, uh, this one from uh, Robert says, uh, or Bob says, uh, Mr. Paul Harris's remarks that the Hong Kong government's approach to environmental issues is derisory uh, presents a very biased view. One, Hong Kong has probably one of the world's most efficient public transport systems, underpinned by the MTR and complemented by the extensive bus, minibus, tram and ferry systems. Mr. Harris seems to have overlooked this detail. Maybe he drives instead. If he does drive, then he would know that he has paid a very high price for his car due to the high first registration tax, unless he's driving an EV, in which case he will be enjoying a government environmental initiative to encourage the uptake of EVs. Three, if he's still driving a conventional vehicle, he would also be aware that petrol prices in Hong Kong are almost triple those in the USA, resulting from the high tax charged by the Hong Kong government, another discouragement for car ownership. Four, but if, in spite of these obstacles, he is a car owner, he's actually one of 76 in 1,000 of the Hong Kong population who owns cars, 114th in the world in car ownership, while the US has 816 car owners per 1,000 people, so approaching one for one, placing the US fifth in the world. But maybe Mr Harris takes taxis, in which case his ride will be powered by LPG, used across the entire taxi fleet and supported by the Hong Kong government's low tax on LPG for vehicles. Derisory? Really? That from, that from Bob. Um, okay. Uh, another one from S writes just one sentence. Uh, what about controlling deforestation, which has gone completely out of control? Uh, this one from G. Uh, whatever happened to developing... Uh, 
generation of power from pedestrian power. Remember the gym, which supplied all its needs for electricity from gym-goers using the mechanical machines, such as treadmills and cycling, at least if domestic needs could be supplied locally by inhabitants and users of the buildings themselves, we could reduce demand. Maybe the power companies are not interested in researching this healthy, clean method of power generation for obvious reasons. Um, I also have a few more, but uh, they're probably going to take too long to read out at this stage. You've got, you got, so got a couple, of, got a couple save, of books worth over there. Save, uh, I'm going to save a few of these for tomorrow, yes, yeah. because, like I say, the, the climate conference is going on all week, so, uh, so the, uh, the topic will still be current, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and instead, because uh, uh, our next guest is in our Admiralty studio, and that's James Ockenden, founder and editor of Transit Jam and producer of the radio show Wham Bam. Tram. Um, James uh, joins us to talk about road safety because, unfortunately, uh, it was a pretty bad weekend for uh, traffic accidents. In fact, there were five fatalities uh, over the weekend. So, um, uh, James Ockenden, uh, uh, good morning to you. Morning. Um, um, generally speaking, where, where are we at with road safeties? I, I, and also, I should also point out that I think two of these fatalities involved cyclists as well, didn't they? That's right, that's right. It was a grim day, and, you know, I've covered many hundreds of deaths for, uh, for, for Transit Jam over the years, and it, and it does not get any easier writing these up and, and talking to the police about these, and I still feel very sad and very angry often uh, when, when reporting on these and, you know, more determined to keep shining a light on these incidents. Because, you know, what we've got to remember here is there were five deaths yesterday, on, on Sunday, sorry, but it wasn't atypical in terms of the number of crashes that day. Uh, in fact, there were 100 crashes on Sunday. And on Monday, where there were no deaths, there were 124 crashes, mm. uh, 28 of those with injuries. So this is a huge th problem. And we only see the deaths, of course, because if we were to report every crash, then everyone would just completely lose interest. Mm. Well, so it, it would be the whole newspaper. It would be every day, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. So, so, I mean, in terms of deaths this past weekend, was this uh, how many people are we normally... Having how many fatalities we normally have on a weekend? I would say, well, on average, there's around 50 to 60 uh, fatalities a year. So we're looking at sort of on average one a week. So yes, five in one day is is certainly unusual unless there's a major incident like the you know the typo bus crash in which uh, you know 18 people lost their lives in one go. Mm. So there was there was a lot, but you know none of these the, the police still report these as accidents, and the government says they are accidents. None of these were accidents. You know these were these were avoidable. Um, so I think something very important to talk about is what the UN is doing right now. Everyone's talking about COP26. The UN actually last week launched its new decade of action for road safety last week um, because the UN has recognised that road deaths are the leading cause of death for young people globally. It's, it's amazing, really. And it's a very unjust death. It impacts the poor, the vulnerable, way more than the rich, you know, who are in their very well-protected cars. So the UN is actually doing something about this now, and I hope Hong Kong can perhaps take some lead. Mm -hmm. Well, except for that one guy. Well, I mean, we have one, one, one outlier to that would be the guy who smashed up his Lamborghini over the weekend. Was it was that road racing or was that just some of the is there any is there any information about that? There's no information about that. But YouTube videos from earlier that night show a number of sports cars racing along uh, Bridespool Road. I calculated the speeds from the uh, counting the lampposts. 
uh, which are 30 metres apart on Bridespool Road. And they were easily reaching 135 kph, you know, just, just going around some of these corners. And it's a 70 kph road. And we know there is, you know, racing going on there regularly. Police have given around 2,000 tickets for speeding on, that, on Bridespool Road in the last uh, nine months. So they're aware of the problem as well, and yet it still goes on. And we get car clubs coming out saying, we're not racing. Of course they are racing. You can see the speeds in some of these YouTube videos. Mm. And yeah, why, are we, why don't we see more enforcement? I mean, I mean, we've, we've got a bit of a surplus of police kicking around right now. Why are they not just setting up on these major black spots? And they, they know where they are, like Castle Peak Road, Bridespool Road. Why don't they just set up and... You know, I don't just know. have a couple of guys out there it, to shut them down. It's an absolute mystery. And what are the police doing? We've got this Operation Golden Sun because there was a rise in the number of bicycle accidents last year. Sorry, crashes, I should call them, not accidents. Um, uh, and so the police immediately decided to crack down on cyclists. And it was completely wrong. And what we've seen is the number of enforcements against cyclists going up 70%. The number of enforcements against careless driving going down 10% by the same period. So police are targeting cyclists, they're not targeting cars, based on some woolly and weak analysis of, of crash data. In fairness though, I mean yeah, Bridespool Road is a, a notorious uh, 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 trouble spot, yeah. um, but I mean, the police have been pretty active there, haven't they? Encountering road racing, I mean you mentioned yeah, just now the number, of, uh, the, yeah. number of, the number of tickets yeah. they've uh, dished out. Uh, yeah, tragically two people uh, uh, were uh, killed there late on, on Sunday night. Um, but but uh, but just uh, just talking about cyclists, I mean I mean what what are the, I mean. I mean, obviously, you're riding a bicycle. Uh, if you're in a collision with a with a, a car or any other type of vehicle, you're in a very vulnerable position. Um, I mean, are other motorists uh, aware of the need to, uh, you know, drive cave, uh, you know, safely and carefully around cyclists? I think they're not in general around pedestrians, mm. around cyclists, and that's the problem. Mm. Is that drivers far too long have got away with careless driving, with, you know, just simple things like illegal parking, blocking pedestrian crossings. And this cultivates a culture of entitlement, of privilege, of carelessness. Uh, if you, I cycle down Queen's Road Central all the time and every driver you can see is holding their phone in their hands and staring at it, sometimes with both hands. You know? And so, of course, I'm aware of that as a cyclist and, and take care of these cars. But they're, they're, that is one big problem. The second is the infrastructure. If you look at the cycle lane where one of the, uh, the men tragically sort of he was reported as just sort of falling off his bike and losing balance. But as you come down that hill towards the fire station, there's a sudden plethora of signs and blockages and the cycle track ends. And it will cause even a sort of experienced cyclist to perhaps, you know, have a wobble or, or, or what's going on here. Um, it's not safe infrastructure. The cycle track is not designed for, you know, smooth cycling there. And what about the cyclists themselves? I mean, uh, um, are they, is the level of sort of uh, competence and awareness good enough? I d I'm not sure that comes into it. We did see, uh, you know, a, a spate of ac uh, crashes which were just uh, individual cyclists. So, you know, it'd be great to see something like we had in the UK, the cycling proficiency, uh, where, you know, every oh, yeah, kid is... That. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Every kid is taught how to ride a bike. And that really focused, that gives everyone a chance to, to get on a bike and, and have a go. But so, we still have a little bit of it. Like, I mean, yeah, we definitely have people out there that are kitted out with helmets and these types of things. But we still have a little bit of an old world culture where guys are riding around on bicycles with like gas canisters and bags of 
dead, you know, dead chickens and things like that. I mean, are, are those people more vulnerable? Not, not according to the statistics. According to police statistics, only 1% of crashes involve food delivery riders, for example. And yet mm-hmm. the general idea seems to be they are dangerous because we see them, you know, whatever, cutting lights or whatever. But no, and in fact, we should be encouraging more of that if we're to have a genuine low-carbon city. We should be seeing more gas canisters and more goods delivered by bicycle. And the more we get and the more safe infrastructure and green loading zones we provide for those, the more we can have a sort of low-carbon, safe bicycle infrastructure. Well, speaking of food delivery, uh, has the explosion of scooters, I mean, you know, it was seen previously in Asia that scooters were a sign of a less developed economy. And as you went up the food chain, they they would try to get the scooters off the street. But now, uh, you know, with the whole explosion of food delivery during COVID, uh, it seems like there's a lot more scooters out there. Has that changed the road safety dynamic? I haven't seen, there's not been a significant rise in, in motorcycle crashes. A lot of these food delivery riders also using bicycles mm. um, as well. So you see a lot more bicycles on the street than you would. Um, but I, I really hope it's something the Road Safety Council could look at because they just immediately see a rise in bicycle crashes and then they d- decide to crack down on cyclists with this Operation Golden Sun. I think what we need is something more like a task force. We need like the environmental department's doing with its carbon neutrality task force. Let's have a road safety task force which has some real teeth and can we actually bring departments together, transport, highways, police, and actually solve some of these problems with some bright people rather than the Road Safety Council looking at it, you know, once a year and coming up with a fashion parade of elderly in high-vis vests. <laughs> OK. OK, well, here's an email from a listener, Neil, says uh, the Transport Department is in denial on the true state of Hong Kong's road safety. The Transport Department only publishes the annual number of traffic accidents causing injury, which in 2019 was 16,102, However, in 2019, there were a further 65,053 damage-only traffic accidents reported to the police, making a total of 81,155 traffic accidents reported in 2019, or a staggering 222 a day. I have twice called uh, Backchat and raised the issue with the Financial Secretary, although I received a couple of phone calls from very low-ranking officers in the Transport Department. Nothing happened in regard to road safety. I believe the Transport Department has stagnated. The only way to really enhance road safety is to establish an independent centre for road safety, a centre focused on one role, saving lives and preventing injury. A 50% reduction in fatalities by 2030 should be easily achievable, aiming for no fatalities on our roads by 2050. Uh, OK, interesting uh, uh, thought there. Um, uh, James Ockenden, is that practical? Yeah, that's exactly what I just said, except I would say it needs to be an interdepartmental government uh, body to start with, a task force, exactly that. 40 civil servants meeting, you know, once every two weeks and getting best practice from around the world, learning from each other, learning from around the world and taking it back to their departments, to transport department, which has a very blinkered view, to the police, which have a very blinkered view, and actually making some change. That would be great to see. Okay. Mm. Okay. well, thanks very much for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Um, uh, Good to see you. Uh, Okay. A quick look at the weather before we uh, go to the news summary and morning brew. Uh, It's going to be mainly cloudy, sunny periods uh, during the day with a top temperature of around 27 degrees, moderate to fresh easterly winds, occasionally strong offshore at first. The outlook, uh, sunny periods in the next couple of days. uh, Rather warm with one or two rain patches in the latter part of this week. Temperatures falling appreciably later on Sunday. It's currently 25 degrees, humidity 74%. Thanks to all our listeners and everybody who wrote 
LinkedIn. More emails on climate change to follow tomorrow. And thanks very much to you, Andrew. My pleasure, Jim. The government will introduce enhancements to the electoral arrangements for the coming elections. There will be special cues for electors who are aged 70 or above, pregnant or in need. Electronic poll registers will be used to enhance efficiency in issuing ballot papers. There will also be measures to enhance inspection of the register of electors and prevent acts of manipulating or undermining elections. Improve electoral system. Ensure patriots administering Hong Kong. The new summary with Vicky Wong. Legislator Frankie Yick has urged the government to regulate fuel prices or subsidise the transport sector to help it deal with the rise in costs. Data from the Consumer Council show diesel prices rose from around $11 per litre last year to $14, an increase of around 30%. Mr Yick said some self-employed drivers had to quit, while others, such as school bus firms who are locked into contracts or minibus and taxi drivers, have had to bear the extra burden themselves. The Department of Health is warning the public not to take an oral product called Hemohim, saying it can cause liver damage. The department said the hospital authority had notified it on Friday of suspected poisoning cases involving acute liver injury in four women. And President Joe Biden has told the United Nations Climate Summit in Scotland that the fight against global warming is a moral imperative, but also offered incredible opportunities for world economies. Separately, President Xi Jinping said developed countries need to do more to tackle climate change and provide extra help to developing nations. Mr Xi addressed the conference in a written statement after deciding not to attend in person. I'll have more on these stories at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Hi. Good morning. And good morning to you too. How are you doing? Excellent. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to your show. Good morning. Good to see you. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Tuesday here on The Morning Brew. Well, it's Melbourne Cup Day in Melbourne. It's described as the race that stops a nation. And under the circumstances, they might need a new slogan. However, it's one of the world's most famous horse races, and it comes with a public holiday. Jared Watt will be with us after 10 today to talk about it, give us the rest of the news, and play some great Aussie music. Dr. Merrin Pierce will be with us after 11.30, slightly later than normal today. He's flying solo. He wants to talk about 15 years of his favourite live event, Green Drinks. From the end of this month, he's going to be broadcasting each week from his new old home in New Zealand. Morris Misalowski is busy today. He will be with us tomorrow at 12.10 with more biz futurism and assorted tech what-ifs. It's Green Day. <laughs> 